Hello, and welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, and I believe that the best leaders don't try to do it alone. As the CEO of Bregman Partners, my mission for over 30 years and the mission of this podcast is to help successful people like you close your leadership gaps, grow as leaders, and inspire your team, inspire all the people around you to get great results. So this is a different kind of Bregman Leadership Podcast than we uh, tend to do. I'm always uh, on the show, we're trying to focus on ways to help you as a leader be effective. Part of that is also taking care of yourself. I don't usually uh, interview people focused on on health, but I got very, very interested in, in this uh, close friend of mine, uh, Howie Jacobson had Casey Means on his podcast, and I was fascinated by by the company that she founded or co-founded and that she leads and and what they did. And I uh, asked, I had a conversation with her and asked if I could participate in the work that she was doing, which you'll find out more about in a second. I'm going to keep it a mystery. Uh, and And I've asked her to come on the podcast to talk about uh, the work that she does and how it might impact us as people, not just as leaders, uh, and also the idea of of using data to make informed decisions about how we lead. So I hope that's uh, enough mystery. I'll jump into an introduction of Casey. Casey Means is a uh, medical doctor. She's a Stanford-trained physician, chief medical officer, and co-founder of Metabolic Health Company Levels. She's an associate editor of the International Journey of Disease Reversal and Prevention. Uh, her mission is to maximize human potential and reverse the epidemic of preventable chronic disease by empowering individuals with tools that can inform smart, personalized, and sustainable dietary and lifestyle choices. Now, I uh, experimented and played with the Levels product. Uh, and this is, by the way, not a product uh, sale. This is not an infomercial kind of podcast. Uh, it, she'll, she'll explain what Levels does in a second, but I, I played with it uh, over the past month uh, and, and you know, discovered a number of things about my own behavior. So without further ado, that's probably already too much ado, but without further ado, <laughs> Casey Means, welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much, Peter, for having me. I'm so glad to be here. So Casey, uh, uh, let's, let's uh, break through the, the mystery for now. What is Levels? What are you doing? Yeah, so Levels is the first tool that we've had to break through the mystery of what to eat for our own body. We really, uh, we offer a solution that lets you know what food and lifestyle decisions actually affect your health positively in real time. And as we all know, nutrition can be really confusing. It's hard to know what is right. You know, there are so many <laughs> battling nutritional ideologies out there and it can feel like a very, very noisy space. It's sort of like, like, should I do keto? Should I do carnivore? Should I do vegan? Should I do paleo? And a lot of people are really confused. So Levels offers a wearable device that gives you feedback instantaneously on uh, internal metabolic biomarkers that tell you exactly how you're responding to every bite you're taking and other lifestyle decisions in real time. And we do this through 
a technology called continuous glucose monitoring. So this is the first biowearable for consumer use. Biowearable meaning that it's like a little lab on your arm. It's testing an internal biomarker, glucose, which is our key metabolic substrate, the key uh, chemical in the body that helps us generate energy from food to process you know, all aspects of our living um, and performance. And we can see that 24 hours a day, seven days a week with this little sensor on our arm, which sends that information of glucose straight to our smartphone so that we can actually use that information to see how we're doing, see how we're responding to choices that we're making, and then make better decisions. And the beauty of glucose being the key sort of unit of energy in the body is that when we stabilize it and when we get into a healthy range, we see lots of improvements in our lives. Stability of glucose translates into stability in our lives, stable energy, stable mood, stable performance. And when we can get it into this low and healthy range, a lot of our sort of daily pain points of living kind of go away. And so um, unfortunately for the American, the average American, our glucose is kind of all over the place throughout the day. And the reason for that is that we are just, we have such a, an unbelievable abundance of refined and processed carbohydrates in our American diet. The vast majority of calories the average American is getting comes from processed and refined uh, carbohydrates. So we're on this glucose roller coaster, and that can really lead to a roller coaster in our performance day to day. So um, having that biofeedback to understand what's happening with this this biomarker and then be able to use software, which is what Levels creates, to optimize that number can just be a real game changer. And it's the first tool we've ever had for feedback uh, on nutrition. We've had trackers, you know, the wearables for almost every other aspect of our general wellness. We have trackers that measure sleep. We have trackers that measure fitness. And we have we even have trackers that measure stress, heart rate variability monitors. We've never, ever had a wearable for nutrition. So that's the space that that we're in. And we not only supply access to these monitors, which traditionally have been very challenging for people to get this, this technology, this wearable. And then we are uh, first and foremost, a software company and a behavior change company that takes this massive raw data stream, you know, data, hundreds of data points a day of glucose and turns into something that's actionable, uh, you know, insight oriented, and that can help you really just, you know, get control of this biomarker very quickly. Great. Okay. So I have a ton of questions, but so the basic <laughs> idea is like, I, I took, I had this, this, um, small round, you're calling it a wearable, but it's really like I uh, adheres to my skin. There's a tiny little filament that comes out of it that goes, you know, inside. Uh, and, and now it's monitoring. First of all, I have a, a very, very important question for the month that I was wearing it. Am I technically a cyborg? I mean, a hundred percent. That's cool. Okay. So I was a cyborg. You are part machine, part human, I'm part machine, part <laughs> human. That's very cool. I always wanted to be a little bit cyborg. Okay. So I forgot that I was, I mean, I didn't forget that I was wearing it. I knew I was wearing it. In fact, when I eventually took it off, I, I found the impulse to place my phone near it to read <laughs> was still there, even though I had taken it off. Um, and, and you said a number of things that were really fascinating. So I just want to unpack some of these. And, and this all goes to like this idea, um, and I'm going to keep tying it back to kind of how we show up as people and as leaders, which is how we manage our energy is critically important. If we're exhausted, if we're not eating right, if we're like we're physical bodies, we're not just minds that are like making decisions and making judgment calls and leading people. We're, we're physical bodies and, and that uh, and, and taking care of our physical bodies becomes an important element of what we're doing. So now. 
Um, there's a million things that you could monitor. Uh, you you made a case for glucose. What I'm wondering about is, are we are we missing an important part of the picture with glucose? So, for example, um, one of the things that I noticed for myself is there are certain things that shot my glucose up, right? For example, eating a banana, my glucose went up to 186. It's the highest my glucose went, you know, for for anything that I ate. On the other hand, you know, eating uh, a bowl of high fat ice cream um, didn't do much to my glucose. And so is it really healthier for me to eat a bowl of ice cream than it is to eat a banana? Such a great question. And the answer is no. It's, you know, there, gluc monitoring glucose is not the panacea for health, but it's a great start in understanding this, this biomarker that we do need to get on top of to have a healthy life. Um, when, and, and, and actually right now, unfortunately, there are no other wearable sensors available to measure an internal biomarker. This is the only thing available and it's, it's a fabulous place to start, but the future of multi-analyte sensors is a field that everyone should be should be following. I mean, I think we're going to be seeing a lot more biomarkers that we can track continuously in the next 10 years. But the reality is that the science behind this stuff is challenging. So regarding the ice cream question, you know, having a continuous triglyceride monitor and a continuous, you know, uh, free fatty acid and inflammatory um, sensor, we might see a little bit different results that might push you towards different choices. But, but the glucose there is really important to hone in on because focusing on the banana, I mean, I think that's really important for you to know. Um, I'm curious, do you want to share how high you, you maybe went on a banana? Yeah, I went up to 186. Okay. So just for people listening, you know, we really want to keep our glucose in a tight range, like generally between about 70 to 110, you know, and that's, that's kind of where you, you want to fluctuate a little bit after meals and, um, and kind of stay within that, that range. So, you know, all of us are going to try foods and we have a CGM monitor on that do shoot us up to like 170, 180, sometimes over 200. And it's so important to know that information because what's happening physiologically in the body, when you shoot up to a level like 180 with your glucose, regardless of whether it's a quote unquote healthy food, like fruit is that your body has a huge cascade of, of biology that's happening after that, that's affecting everything. Your pancreas is going to surge out this hormone called insulin, which is the hormone that helps your body take glucose out of the bloodstream. And when the glucose is that high, you're going to get a ton of insulin. And generally what's going to happen is you're going to overshoot. Your body is going to suck up all this glucose and you actually are probably going to have what's called a reactive hypoglycemia dip, big spike, big dip. And that post-meal dip because of that big glucose load, that's when we feel moody, jittery, potentially anxious, and really low energy. A lot of people who have that post-meal slump, that's because, or that, you know, that food coma, that's reactive hypoglycemia. So that roller coaster of glucose is leading to a subjective roller coaster experience during the day. So the beauty is there's a lot you can do to kind of level that out. And one thing we know is that when you pair glucose with fat, fiber, or protein, and don't have sort of naked carbohydrates, I'd consider fruit really a naked carbohydrate because the macronutrient composition of that food is so skewed in favor of carbs. There's not a lot of protein, fat, or fiber. You're going to have, you know, just the full force of that, that glucose load. So, you know, pairing the banana with almond butter or 
adding some chia seeds or, you know, putting it in some, some full fat yogurt, you might actually see a very different response. So there's ways to kind of tweak this to help stabilize it. And it's not just, you know, adding other foods to help really kind of to balance the meal and balance the blood sugar. There's actually a bunch of lifestyle stuff that plays into it as well. If you're stressed, if you've had low sleep, or if you haven't had a lot of exercise, you're typically going to have quite a bit of a higher spike than on a day where you are very low stress, have slept really well and have exercise. So it's, it's this complex sort of formula that goes into our glucose readout that factors in a lot of different lifestyle and dietary choices. And the beauty of glucose, um, as a biomarker is that it is a readout for all these different things, food, stress, sleep, and exercise. And so this is where this, this is where software comes in. If you can bring in software that actually takes all those variables and then can convert that raw data stream into actionable insights about stress, sleep, exercise, macronutrient composition, then all of a sudden you're on your way to like figuring out how to flatten that line with really actionable stuff. So that's what, that's what we are doing primarily, but yeah. And, and there's a couple of important things I want to underscore one, which is you're saying like, yeah, glucose is a very, very good marker. It's not the only marker, but it's the only one we have right now. And it gives us really good data. And I think that's really important because, you know, like measure what you can, right? You know, like, like measure what you can. And I did find it fascinating that, you know, like I look good. I mean, if I do say so myself, like I, 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 I look good. Like I look like I'm in shape. I work out and, and, and there's this difference between fitness and health. And there's a difference between looks and health. And so this was the first time I was able to sort of like measure what's going on besides my heart rate, like, which actually has changed by what I eat. But, but it, it, it's like, it's very interesting to go like, oh, those, those corn chips, I might feel fine afterwards, actually, but I can see that it's doing something to my body that's not good. And so it it was a real shout out to me to measuring what you can't see because it's because, you know, it has an impact that you may not be able to notice, but it's still, you know, there's still stuff going on. Now, in terms of this, my scores, my metabolic scores, um, I found two things gave me a bad score, right? A low score, a score that's saying I uh, actually three things, really. I could eat a super healthy meal, what I considered to be a super healthy meal, quinoa, chili, apples, carrots. I'm looking at one right now. And I got a three. Like I got a very low score for that. My but which and a low score uh, means that my glucose shot up, and and I think what you're saying to me is that looks like it's really healthy and it may be really healthy, but if you want to manage your glucose, which you're saying there's a number of reasons to do, then I should have added some more fat to it in order to slow the absorption of the sugars into my bloodstream. Yeah, absolutely. That's such an interesting example because overall it's like, that's a great, that's a beautiful meal with so much nutrient density and a lot of stuff that's going to fuel your body to perform in an excellent way. It's got fiber, it's got protein, it's got phytonutrients, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but you know, I would look at that meal just having now done CGM for 18 months, continuous glucose monitoring. And I'd say to me, that says instantly drop the quinoa, replace it with cauliflower rice, which, you know, tastes delicious. And you'd probably have a 10 like that, a 10 being a zone score, which is, you know, you had a three, which means a very big spike, probably a sustained elevation. 10 is essentially zero spike, 
no glucose response and totally stable. So you start learning, you know, what are the things that, that are the, the things thwarting the meal essentially. And I think after using this for a number of months, it's very, it's very obvious. So now when I go to a restaurant, I see all these beautiful meals and I'm like, Oh no, they included one ingredient. That's going to tank this meal. Like it'll be a beautiful salad with protein and healthy whole food fats and avocado, but there will be dried cranberries, which are always sweetened or honey in the salad dressing. And my thought is, you know, now that we know, and and you'll see your score below, you know, if we had just omitted that one ingredient or swapped it for a healthier alternative, all of a sudden we've managed our day way better. We're not on the roller coaster. We're stable. And that's important, um, you know, to know, because sometimes, you know, I think, when we think about sort of our personal identity, we're like, oh, I'm this type of person who gets tired in the afternoon. I'm just the type of person who happens to be moody or anxious mid-morning. And it really changes, I think, your sense of personal identity and your sense of agency when you're able to actually cut through some of that and say, no, this was actually just the result of something that I did that I have control over. We never had that information before. And now we do. So we move towards this place of, oh no, this is a, this is a subjective conditional state that I'm experiencing because of a choice I made. I know what that choice was. I know how to change it. And now I can improve my life. And that sort of trifecta of linking objective data to a choice, to a subjective experience. I think that's the crux of behavior change and optimization. So that's really what we're right. trying to empower people with. How okay. do you feel? Yeah. So I want to talk about the behavior change here. I want to just mention the two other things, just very, very briefly, the two other things that raised it, Yes. which was exercise, which I understand is because it pushes glucose to the, you know, to the extremities, I guess, or it, it, it mm-hmm. to the muscles and then, and then it's used by the muscles. But I, you know, like when I look at what my worst scores are, some of them were like cross country skiing. I'm like, seriously, but, but that's, you know, that's, I guess, because the, the, that's, that's for a good reason. I'm, I'm guessing. That's correct. So totally different physiology. Um, what's happening is we store about a hundred grams of glucose in our liver as stored glucose, which is called glycogen. And in our muscles, we store about 400 grams of glucose for, for comparison. We only have about four grams total of glucose in our circulation. So we store it in the muscle and the liver. And then when we need it like cross country skiing, we our, our body releases stress hormones when we're working out cortisol and other catecholamine hormones. And it tells your liver to dump it out, deliver it to the muscles, give it energy. So in a sense, that glucose spike is telling you, awesome, you're doing an intense workout. Your body said we need fuel and we're going to use it. And two, um, the, the nice thing about that is that you're actually clearing some of the glucose from your body. You're, you're mobilizing it into the bloodstream for use. And what that does is it kind of depletes your overall glucose stores. And the downstream product of that is that when you sort of run out of stored glucose in the body, we have about two hours with stored glucose in the body. What your body has to do is then convert to fat burning mode. Glucose and fat are the two primary forms of energy in the body. And when your glucose is low and that hormone insulin is low, it lets you burn fat. Insulin is actually a block to fat burning. So this is important because for most people eating a generally normal American diet with, you know, carbs sort of all the time, our insulin and our glucose is always high and we never go into fat burning. What's interesting about that is that then you're reliant, your body is basically rusty at fat burning and you are reliant on glucose, which means 
two or three hours after a meal, you start getting really hungry and uncomfortable and hangry, as they say. And that really is a deficit in fat burning. When we are able to actually get into states like you're talking about, like where we're mobilizing the glucose during a workout, getting into a low lower glucose state, we flip the switch on fat burning. That's called metabolic flexibility. And that is a superpower because then you can go, you know, hours, if not days, you know, if you're a good fat burner, you can potentially fast for days and not be uncomfortable. And, and how do we, burn- how do we increase that? How do we increase our ability to burn fat? We, so there's a number of mechanisms eating a low, essentially a, a diet that does not spike glucose means that you're keeping glucose pretty low and stable in the blood. And then you're basically forcing your body to use fat, uh, for fuel. So this could look like keeping on levels, your, your zone scores in the tens, as much as you can keeping your glucose spikes low. So you're not spiking insulin throughout the day and, and fasting. So basically restricting the time that you're, um, eating throughout the day, maybe instead of eating from 7am to 8pm, a breakfast at 7am, then a lunch, then a snack, then an 8pm dinner, narrow that window, maybe skip breakfast, have a, have a meal at 11 and then a meal at six. And then you're having much more time during the day when glucose and insulin are low and you're having to tap in, uh, to fat burning. So So should you always work out on an empty, you know, like on a fast, should you always work out after, you know, before breakfast or, or, you know, without before eating kind of thing, or when it's been many hours since you've eaten? It's a really great question. And the answer is there's there's good scientific evidence to suggest that working out in a fasted state is actually really beneficial for metabolic health. And I will say anecdotally, most of the levels team, our company is like evangelical about working out fasted. Now I now do all my Peloton rides first thing in the morning, having not eaten for 10 to 12 hours, because I know that my glycogen, my stored glucose is lower. My insulin is lower, which means I'm immediately going to be tapping into more fat burning fat turn. When you burn fat for energy, it produces ketones, which are actually shown to be really an effective energy source for the brain. And people sometimes say they feel a ketone high, which is like this laser focus associated with burning fat for energy, which the average American does not do very frequently. I will just a caveat on the fasted workout. It is something that takes a while to become comfortable with, because if we're used to burning glucose during all our workouts, it's, it can feel really uncomfortable to just jump right in. We have to remember everything in the body is a meta is an adaptation, cellular pathways getting ramped up over time. So you're not going to immediately be able to jump into that. So I would just say ease into it, maybe start eating before workouts, a lower carb snack, like avocado or olives and kind of ease into it. Cause you don't want to get into a, a situation where you go out and run 10 miles fasted and you know, you, you pass out. So right. just easing into things is really important. So there's, and actually I'll just give you the last thing that raised it in a way that I don't understand is hot baths. Like when mm. I would take a hot bath afterwards, I would look at my glucose. I was like, wow, like that somehow taking that hot bath just increased my glucose levels in my body. Two things with that. One is that the heat can sometimes affect the sensor. So it may be just sensor error. Oh, I see. And so okay. you can exclude that that from uh, your score. Um, and the second thing is that if it's really hot, it may generate a quick stress response. And that stress can actually mobilize glucose in the body. Okay. Yeah. So we have to interpret the data in certain ways. Okay. So now there's two ways of looking at this. One, which which my friend Howie was very captivated with, is this idea that you know, like I always thought we could just give people rules about how to eat, but it's very, very personal. And, and, and actually having a monitor shows you exactly what your personal responses are. Um, the other is the behavior change piece, which is 
having personal response, watching my own personal responses changes my behavior. Now, based on what you're saying and based on my experience, I, I'm, I'm leaning less against the everybody has this personal response. And I'm sort of curious about that. Like, I think it's probably true. We all like, you know, your banana, you know, your response to a banana is probably going to be different than my response to a banana. But it does seem like there's a bunch of rules that you're learning. You've collected a tremendous amount of data from a tremendous number of people who've been wearing glucose monitors. It sounds like, you know, there's some things that on on average apply to all of us based on the mm. data that you've been been collecting. Is that true? I would say there are some sort of universal truths that I would that I I think are real. I do think um, the more we learn about nutrition, the more we actually lean towards what Howie was saying, which is there is really no one size fits all diet for everyone, mm -hmm. and people do respond very differently to different foods. And a lot of that research comes from the last just couple of years. Um, you know, there was this landmark paper in 2015 out of Israel called personalized nutrition by prediction of glycemic responses, which showed that the average healthy person like you and I could eat the exact same meal and have wildly different glucose responses. And again, we want glucose responses to be low and stable for optimal health and for long-term health. And so knowing that is important. Um, but what, you know, with, with that and, and, and in that, in that study and other subsequent studies, they've looked at like, what are the factors that cause us to have a different response? And some, one of the huge ones was microbiome composition, how your bacteria in your body actually process those carbohydrates to turn into, you know, sugar or other byproducts of bacterial metabolism. So, um, you know, so that's worth, worth sort of personalizing, but yes, agree. There are certain principles that, we all, you know, can benefit from one of which being like the human body does not need refined carbohydrates or refined sugar to function. Those things are, I would consider refined sugar, you know, almost like a drug that, um, you know, we can use in, in moderation if we choose to, but we should be aware of what it's, what it's doing to our body. And, um, you know, you're, you're off, you're, you're going to see glucose elevations to refined sugar and it's pretty much in every processed food. And so, um, you know, I consider wearables like this to almost be like one of our only forms of recourse or power in the face of a very, uh, well-funded, uh, very unregulated food system that can really market whatever they want and put whatever they want in food. And the food we're eating today is virtually unrecognizable from food we were eating 50 years ago. Um, and so, and we're powerless to really understand that. And yet it's controlling our minds and, and bodies. So to me, it gives us this sense of power and this sense of information in the face of a, just a very uh, difficult and potentially sort of dangerous food culture. And we know it's dangerous because 74% of Americans are overweight or obese and 40% of the country has prediabetes or diabetes, almost entirely preventable conditions that lead to, you know, the vast underlie the vast majority of our $3.8 trillion healthcare costs. So to me, having like a little teeny bit of, you know, power in the face of that, um, you know, when, when we go into the grocery store and everything's marketed as healthy and yet we're all sick. And, um, I think, I think that to me is just, is just a fabulous, uh, advancement. So, so that brings me to the second piece, which is that, that um, the usefulness of immediate feedback for behavior change, right? Which is, you know, something that I've talked about on this podcast a lot, which is, you know, like how, how we help people change their behavior. And, you know, ideally immediate feedback is fantastic. So 
here's what my experience was for the first three weeks I had it. I was like watching my glucose go all over the place, but I actually wasn't changing my behavior. Even though I wanted to change my behavior, I wasn't changing my behavior. And then I was like, oh my God, I've got one week left with this thing <laughs> and I'm not taking advantage of it. Like, I'm not like, let me see if I really, and, and it happened that my sister-in-law is in the house, who's a physician and she's gone keto and keto is like kind of high fat, very, very low carb. Uh, I, I, I don't know all the specifics about it. You probably know a lot more. Than, I'm sure you know a lot more than I do. Um, and, and so I sort of just started like, you know, eating more nuts and seeds and really cutting out all of the, all of the carbs, like for about four or five days, cutting out a hundred percent of the carbs. I mean, eating tons of vegetables, but eating no fruit, right. eating no wheat thins, eating no. And I saw a dramatic change in, in my glucose level and also actually in things like my heart rate, like it actually was. And, uh, and so like. I'm curious what you've discovered about feedback and behavior change in this process and the, and you know, like how data and feedback results or doesn't result in behavior change. And then I also do have this sort of question, which is like, now I'm, you know, like, is it really healthy to eat, you know, like no, no quinoa and none of that, no, no bananas. And, you know, like is, is, is seeking to keep my glucose really low or stable is probably better than saying than low. Um, like I, I sort of feel like, you know, a couple of eggs a day, maybe I need to get my cholesterol checked. Like I, I worry that I optimize on, like I, I have data. This is my question. And it's actually a, uh, an organizational question too. I have access to data on one important measure, but mm. not on a couple of other important measures. So I'm going to optimize to that one measure and will I possibly be compromising my health in other things that I'm not measuring? Does that question make sense? Oh, it totally does. And it's a key question. And I would say right now we are addressing that question with education and, and product features because it's a really important one. I always joke, like, you can definitely keep your glucose flat and stable if you if all you consume is vodka. Like, that's, right. a, that's a great way to keep your glucose low. Which You're just, just for the die. sake of clarity is not something that you suggest. Uh, no, it is not. Yeah. Um, you know, and there's a huge carnivore movement, you know, where people are eating nose to tail meat and their glucose is going to look low and stable. Um, but are, you know, the question is, are they getting the nutrients they need for the long term? And so because glucose is the only biomarker that we can track right now, we do have to address that question more with education and product features that really build in the nuance of uh, of nutrition, because you're totally right. When you orient just around one thing, you could think that you're winning the game by just eliminating lots of things that are healthy. With that said, I think the beauty is, uh, is that we actually have so many choices. Like you don't have to eat a banana to get the phytonutrients that are in fruit. There are dozens and dozens of fruit you can eat, many of which that are not going to cause the roller coaster. So for me, I, I can't eat a banana. It's going to be a huge up and down. So I'm okay not having that because there's about five fruits that I can have that even on their own virtually don't spike my glucose. So things like a small unripe pear, typically like no glucose response, like a less ripe pear, not a super juicy one, not going to really touch my glucose. A few, some blueberries, raspberries, cherries, and then if I add some tahini or almond butter, really going to keep it stable. So it's really about finding alternatives. Um, 
Think the same with quinoa, you know, for a lot of our, our members, sweet potato, like I'm just like thinking about other starchy foods other than quinoa, sweet potato, for instance, causes a massive spike, like up to 200. And for others, it causes very little for the people with the big spikes. Again, they add some whole food fat to it and they often get a blunted response. So it's really about not eliminating healthy foods or foods that have a great nutrient density, but figuring out how to eat them or eat alternatives in a way that works for your body. And I do think, you know, the quinoa question, yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, it's, well, quinoa is technically a seed, I think, but you know, whole grains in general, which we're told are healthy for our body. Um, sure. You know, firstly, I have essentially eliminated grains because of CGM and I look for other alternatives that are going to give me similar, you know, so I think of food as molecular information. That's what food is. Food is giving our, our body molecules to help us function properly. And so what is whole grains giving us? It's giving us fiber. That's the key thing that we think about in terms of whole grains being healthy, but it's also got a really high, just like net carbohydrate count. So I think how else can I get fiber? And there's so many other options. I can do cauliflower rice, broccoli rice, you know, chia seeds, beans, legumes, that are going to have much less net carbohydrates and still give me that that molecular information that quinoa or, or a grain barley whatever had. So it's really about finding other alternatives which with high nutrient density, less collateral damage in terms of glucose. So that's the way I think about it. But that all all of that is a little complex. So building a product experience that guides people towards that really is that is what our our mission is and where you know, the product is going to go in 2021, a lot more about swaps, alternatives, nuanced, you know, education, um, to give people, to help guide people towards the best, um, options. So that was kind of part two of your question. And I think part one was about more about data. Um, I want right. I just want to make sure we circle yeah, yeah, back. Yeah. To, no, it's great. That. Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the data and repeat the the first part of the question. Yeah, so so um the what we're learning, I have a couple of questions around data, but one of the questions is what are we learning about how data is actually impacting people's behavior? Are people responding to the data really well? Is it like how is data impacting behavior and have you learned anything about how to use data to impact behavior? Such a great question. Yeah, so I think that the core premise of digital health, uh, sort of solutions and really what we're focused on at levels. The thesis is that closed loop biofeedback is necessary for behavior change. Unfortunately, most things with health are open loop systems, really lagging indicators where there's an action and a very nonspecific reaction there. It's either a reaction that you see months or years in the future, like, you know, a lab test, a year down the road in your doctor's office or a chronic disease 30 years down the road, that type of system where the reaction has zero one-to-one -one relationship with the choice essentially puts us in a position where we have very limited agency to make good choices. So the more we can tighten that feedback loop to a closed loop biofeedback system where it's like one choice, one reaction, the more you can accelerate behavior change. And that's been shown in, in research literature and really is, I think, the future of health because open loop systems have failed us. And essentially people just throw their hands up like, 
I don't, I mean, so my, my fasting glucose last year was five points lower than my fasting glucose this year. What the, the doctor told me to eat healthier. What the hell do I do? No one, no one knows how to link that back to specific actual food choices. So that's the beauty of, of behavior change with wearables, I think. And what we're seeing with all types of wearables is that, you know, you eat a banana, you see the result, you know what to do next time with the banana. Um, and so, so we're seeing that I think in, 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 all of our, really all of our customers, I would say every levels member has at least a, a few magic moments during their experience where they realize this individual food caused harm in my body and I need to think about it um, differently. And I think even a few of those moments totally changes the way we think about food on a more macro scale and lifestyle, because again, it gets back to I actually do have control. I need to think bigger. And it unlocks this whole new avenue of, um, of feeling agency over our, over our choices, over this typically very nebulous, um, area of health, um, where we just get a lot of general guidelines that are, so, that are sometimes unhelpful. So it sounds like one of the real keys to the data being effective is to remove as many variables as you can so that you're really measuring something very, very discreetly and you're getting immediate feedback to what it is that you're measuring really discreetly. That's, that's exactly right. And I think that's led us to really incorporate a lot of challenges into the product. So, Hey, eat brown rice and white rice and see what happens, you know, compare independent things that are just one variable, see what happens. Um, you know, eat a banana and an orange, see what happens. We have a number of challenges built into the app. And as we move forward, we're bringing in, we have brought in just recently, um, other data streams. So sleep, um, and fitness and heart rate through Apple health and Google fit. Um, and so now with sort of larger scale data analytics, we can start parsing out, you know, let's say, let's say you had a sweet potato on a day with five hours sleep versus eight hours of sleep. And you have a 20% higher glucose response on the day that you had five hours of sleep with those extra data streams, we can start sort of putting on a silver platter. Hey, when you sleep 30% less, your glucose is 20% higher. So you really need to focus on this particular variable of your health. So that's that type of big data is, is I think where healthcare is going and people are going to be able to just essentially have a, a plan put in front of them that's largely done independent of any doctor's mm -hmm. cognitive, you know, work on it. Cause it's the, the, the doctor can't even do this type of higher level processing. Right. A human brain can't do it. It actually requires a tech enabled solution right. um, to parse these variables and people can just know, Hey, like sleep is the biggest driver of me having elevated glucose. So I, I must focus on that. Right. And then there's lots of tools to support people and helping get better sleep. So so um, I want to talk for just, a, a again, a brief moment about this idea of optimizing. So I spoke with my doctor who said, you know, who when I said, uh, yeah, look, I could, you know, my glucose was, was, you know, it should be 70 to 110. It's really like 90 to 140. Uh, and he's like, as long as it's under 140, you're fine. And, and it's this question of like optimizing versus good enough like the like like is it if you don't have you know i think the way a lot of the medical profession looks at it is if you don't have a problem like you you go you give your labs they check your labs if anything's highlighted then you got to look at it and if it's not then you're fine and that there's normal variation and so i'm curious about that like is there a 
Is there danger to over-optimizing? Is there a natural, like, on the one hand, you know, all this stuff is very personal. On the other hand, what you're saying is what you really need to do is to stay between 70 and 110. And is that really true for all human beings? Or are some human beings optimum at 90 to 130? Like, uh, so I'm asking, there's a lot of questions in here, but do you understand generally what I'm asking? Yeah, no, it's it's a great point. And the answer is there's not a uh, a clear answer to this because we don't know we don't have enough information about continuous glucose levels and metabolic biomarkers for the average person to be able to say the perfect glucose range for every person is is XYZ. But right. what I do know is that the idea that staying below 140 is good enough has absolutely abjectly failed in our country. We have a the the largest epidemic in human history is metabolic disease. We it is it is ravaging our our globe and it is not being addressed effectively by the healthcare system. We have, you know, like like I mentioned 128 million Americans with diabetes or prediabetes. These conditions didn't exist 100 years ago, and now 40% of the country has it. And recent research suggests that 88% of Americans have some element of metabolic dysfunction, even if they haven't reached diagnosed disease of prediabetes or diabetes. The other thing is, so 90 million Americans with prediabetes, 84% don't know they have it. Um, And, you know, I think clinical practice really has not caught up with research because right now, if you walk into the doctor's office and you get your yearly fasting glucose te- checked, if you're under a hundred milligrams per deciliter, your doctor is going to say stamp of approval, you're normal. You're not pre-diabetic. You're not diabetic. You're normal. But what we actually know from the research is that as fasting glucose rises from 70 to hundred, we essentially exponentially increase our risk of heart disease, stroke, diabetes in the future. So being a fasting glucose of 75 and 99 are vastly different. And I'd be petrified, you know, if I were 99, that does not mean your uh, your bill of health, you're great. It, It actually means that there's probably quite a bit of underlying metabolic dysfunction going on, you know, happening. And that's the time to get on top of it and really optimize because the beauty about metabolism and all cellular sort of biology is that it can move in both directions, the good direction, the bad direction, based on the conditions that are, that are put forward, um, consistently. So, um, so, you know, my, of course, yep. my personal opinion is that, you, you know, we really need to get on top of these things and, and optimize early when we have the best opportunity to move, um, in the right direction. Um, you know, dysregulated blood sugar is associated with every major chronic, well, first of all, nine of the 10 leading causes of death in the United States and almost every major chronic illness that we're seeing. So what people might not really know is that, you know, we, we like to think in modern medicine of like all these diseases that we're dealing with in the U S are isolated silos. They're separate conditions. The reality is with, you know, advances in systems and network biology, where we're starting to really understand what the links between diseases are, they're not actually isolated, separate physiology. They're not separate things. A lot of them are actually the trunk of the tree of these diseases is dysfunctional metabolism, problems with the way we process energy and insulin resistance, which is, you know, this process of uh, our insulin being too high in the body because of Mm -hmm. chronic glucose stimulation. So that's really where we need to address to kind of melt away a lot of these chronic diseases, not just treating each one with separate medications that largely manage symptoms. And, you know, that process of waiting until we develop overt disease, then managing it for the rest of your lifetime with medications that typically just manage symptoms 
that is a, that is not a system we really want to be a part of. That is just a right. suboptimal way to practice medicine and live. So we're really trying to be on that, the front end of that. Um, and hopefully cause people to wake up a little bit and then push the system to kind of demand more from their right. doctors. Yeah. So I'm curious about how, you know, you're a data driven company. You're, you know, it's all about collecting data and responding to the data and behavior change based on the data in order to uh, improve outcomes and optimize outcomes. I'm curious about whether this, the, this philosophy, this sort of organizing principle that uh, of the product of your company impacts the company itself. Meaning I'm curious if you use data in terms of how you run the company, if you um, have, you know, have clues as to ways of, of uh, maximizing the impact of immediate feedback in an organization or a leadership setting that, uh, that allows you to, you know, uh, have more optimum outcomes. And I, again, like there's no need for that to have happened, but I'm just sort of curious whether you've been able to bridge the gap between the sort of health approach and the leadership or organization. Mm. Such a great question. You know, I think that we are a very sort of academic, you know, techie data focused company for sure. And so, you know, we, we certainly uh, focus on sort of data to help optimize our processes, you know, our, our KPIs and our, our SEO search engine optimization data and sort of really a lot of AB testing and things like that. So in a lot of ways, we're using uh, feedback to help, you know, optimize our processing and be efficient. Um, and, you know, we certainly use data from um, things we, we, you know, we hear from customers um, to help optimize our product and refine things. I, I would say, the the other aspect of sort of glucose monitoring and what we're how we're trying to sort of quote unquote disrupt the way people think about health and nutrition that sort of contrarian do things differently think bigger that's more the organizing principle of our product that I think reflects on our company because we have a very unique company culture uh, that that really prides itself on examining every standard business practice and and not doing it if we think it's not going to really help with the progress of our company. So um, some examples of that are we basically by default don't have meetings at the company. We um, we are very much into long form writing and we before scheduling a meeting, you essentially must write a long form document organizing your thoughts and sharing it with people for asynchronous feedback before scheduling a meeting. Um, we are a completely remote company, not because of covid because of, you know, we think that it's a good for personal life control and flexibility. We also think it's a really great forcing function for effective documentation and communication. Um, and so we're going to be remote always. Um, we, we're extremely, we're radically transparent. We actually publish almost all of our internal company strategy documents and share them widely. So uh, that's sort of the aspect of what we're doing that I think reflects most on our company is really um, sort of running our company differently. And and so far it's been, it's been extremely, extremely positive, but we certainly use data um, to help improve our, our efficiency and processes, but we're also just trying to kind of just shake up the way we think about day-to-day um, -day life. And, and I think one of the byproducts of that is it actually leads to a, 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 a healthy company culture where people have the ability to be healthy 
at work and bring their best selves. Um, and, and a lot of that has to do with as much asynchronous communication as possible. Um, we want to get, have people, um, have a, a, the control in their life that they can bring their best selves to work and do their best work. And so that's been fascinating to be a part of, um, as my former life as a surgeon, everything's done synchronously. You're in the operating room with a patient and no matter how you feel or how much sleep you've gotten or whatever. And so this has been a really amazing change of pace. And, um, well, and what I'm hearing you say too, is that you've organized the company in such a way that people could figure out what works individually for them and still work collaboratively to achieve you know, some kind of collective aligned outcome. Exactly. Which parallels pretty much what we're doing with, with nutrition. Right. Yeah. Nutrition. Right. Well, this has been such a pleasure. The whole experiment for me has been super, super interesting. I, it, it ended too soon for me. I should probably go through another lap of it. Uh, just because it took me so long to, um, to learn, you know, to not, not to learn, but to, um, get my butt in gear to change my own behavior. (laughs) I understand there's like a 75 or 80,000 person wait list for, uh, for getting these continuous glucose monitors. Is that right? There is. Yes. We're, we're a pre-launch company. We're still in our beta phase. So our wait list is, is 85,000 now, and we're just working really hard to scale our, uh, operations and accommodate all those customers. So if people want to be in touch with you, if they want to, um, learn more about this, where do they go? Yeah. So I would check out our website and our blog. So levelshealth.com and levelshealth.com slash blog. Our blog is an unbelievable wealth of information from just big, big names in metabolic health and and medicine and a lot more information about sort of a lot of the things we talked about on this, uh, on this podcast. So highly recommend, um, we're also on social at, uh, at levels. Um, so levelshealth.com, but social is at levels at on Twitter and Instagram. I, I think, both Twitter and Instagram are actually really fun to follow because we're constantly posting member experiments that they're doing. Um, people love sharing their glucose data and there's just some fascinating experience that people run every day. And so it can give you more of a sense of what people, how people are using this tool. Um, and so, yeah, reach out to us on any of those platforms and we'd love to, we'd love to be in touch. Casey means from levels. She's, uh, the chief medical officer and co-founder of levels. It has been such a treat to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Peter. Thanks for listening. Here's what I've learned from working with some of the most successful leaders of the most successful companies. Every leader, every team, and every organization has a leadership gap. If you want to become a leader who inspires your team to get things done, then you've got to start by raising the level of your leadership abilities. You can start by taking our free leadership gap assessment at www.bregmanpartners.com forward slash quiz. Then dive deeper with a copy of my latest book, Leading with Emotional Courage. For more ways to become a truly great leader, check out our online offerings, in-person workshops and events, and my articles at www.bregmanpartners.com. Again, thanks so much for joining me today, and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode.